0: Welcome to this new format of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine talk, which is a collaboration of our journal Intensive Care Medicine and Next. We plan to discuss once a month a paper published in the Intensive Care Medicine with its authors. I'm Stefan Schaller from the Charité University Hospital in Berlin, and I'm the next chair of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Today we are going to discuss the paper Natural History, Trajectory and Management of Mechanically Ventilated COVID-19 Patients in the United Kingdom by Brijesh Patel and colleagues. Dr. Brijesh Patel is a physician scientist at Imperial College London, and is honorary consultant and lead for the ICU research at the Royal Brompton and Hereford hospitals. His research focus is the puff of physiology and basic mechanisms of injury and inflammation induced by mechanical ventilation, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and extracorporeal life support. He's the first author of the paper, and he also may mention proudly former member of the next committee. My second guest is Professor Aldo Faisal, the data science lead on the project. He's Professor of the Artificial Intelligence and Neuroscience at the Department of Computing and Department of Bioengineering at Imperial College London. Aldo is the founding director of the United Kingdom Research and Innovation Center for Doctoral Training in AI for Healthcare, which I find very interesting actually. He is the elected speaker of the cross-faculty network in artificial intelligence representing AI in college on behalf of over 200 academic members. Now, let's get started with an explanation of the study by the authors, followed by discussion. Rish and Aldo, can you explain to me the idea behind your paper and the methodology?
1: So, I think one of the um, key ideas behind the study um, really had two aims. Um, The one was to uh, better understand the progression of COVID-19 in patients in ICU um, undergoing invasive mechanical ventilation, particularly across the pandemic. Um, And then really secondly, to map the use, um, uh, compliance, duration, and and all of the effectively management and application of our evidence-based arts interventions and management strategies. And I think this was the key aspect. Um, but also, as Aldo will kind of go on to say, is there were no databases really at the outset of the pandemic for this new disease, um, which really captured um, the daily data that we use on a, on, you know on an everyday basis when we do our rounds um, to really understand this disease. So firstly, we wanted to understand uh, the disease itself, but then how we the decisions that we applied. Um, really, that modulate the disease progression.
0: So, Aldo, how did you came on board?
2: So, we've been working for the past uh, almost a decade, but definitely the past seven years on anesthesiology and and critical care applications of machine learning, artificial intelligence. So, uh, we started with systems that control anesthesia depth and and make them smart, uh, and went then on to looking at how can we. Uh, support, for example, the management of sepsis in ICU uh, through our AI Clinician project, which is now being rolled out in, in four hospitals in the UK, uh, where we uh, build decision support system that learns from, can learn from hundreds of thousands of um, electronic healthcare records how to support um, uh, patients uh, and clinicians in critical care. And so to speak, this we were one of the few labs in AI and machine learning that happened to be working on critical care when the pandemic hit, and I had already the chance to to meet Bridge, of course, um, as one of the active members. And then we started talking. We were both involved in the National Emergency Committee in Critical Care, um, and we decided that, what can we do? And and I think one of the critical realizations was that a lot of data in ICU is, so to speak, focused on admissions data. And we both, um, from our own work respectively, had an understanding that, um, that the trajectory of the patient itself may be important and that we need to look at granular data where we have daily or twice-daily updates and seeing how patients evolve while they're being treated.
0: Okay. Do you want to add something additional for the methodology before we go on? Because uh, I would be, of course, then interested on the main results and on the clinical impact you see in the paper.
2: Yeah, so I think on from the methodology side, uh, it was a true collaboration between data scientists, AI people, critical care experts, and, and, and a lot of very uh, committed hospital and care staff, um, in terms of getting this data into our system uh, during, you know, the worst of the, the waves of the pandemic. Um, so key to our idea was that we have a standing national service evaluation that would continuously pull in data from all the participating hospitals. This has been organized bottom-up, uh, thanks to Bridges uh, intellectual leadership here, also within the clinical community, bringing in hospitals that have, of course, electronic records, You know, specialist critical care units, but also bringing in hospitals that maybe are in different regions of the country and are still paper-based records. So on the technical side, we set up systems um, uh, you know, databases that people can access and enter things easily in a secure and privacy-provoked manner. We developed, um, you know, Excel spreadsheets that allow people to enter quickly medical and patient data and check for correctness and upload this into our database. So literally we had a broad picture of ICUs across the country and in, in how patients were treated there. So from the technical side, the key aspect is we developed bottom-up effectively method for surveying, the current picture of treating COVID across British ICUs um, and that is on a standing and ongoing platform and basis.
0: Okay, that actually relates to one of my questions which I would like to ask now Bridge because we work in quite different systems and so when I read the study I was really interested how was it possible for you to so quickly start at the beginning of the pandemic so how was this structure or network already exist or how did that work because this was quite challenging for us
1: so i think one of the key aspects as aldo mentioned was the national emergency committee for critical care um, and the intensive care society so uh, if you imagine there were so many large projects ongoing within the uk that got activated during, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and ICERIC, genomic, uh, the recovery trials, et cetera. And I think one of the key things that we wanted to ensure is that we didn't impede that sort of delivery uh, for, you know, established research um, through through those aspects. So one of the things that we did here was that every ICU has very different um, systems, as you say. But actually, one of the key aspects within the UK is that um, the electronic uh, system, as per Philips, so the ICA system, there's a number of um, ICUs that have those that are used, all, all in different formats and different modules, um, but also many are still paper-based. So we, we had to get, a, a, to get the granular timeline, we picked an 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Um, So, you know, if you imagine if you're collecting data on the shop floor, literally you go to 8am and 8pm and get those data results rather than going for the worst blood gases, for instance. And our hope was that that would give us an overall picture as to the trajectory of twice daily. So, you know, in the morning when you do your round, in the evening when you do your round, back in the morning again. Um, So it was a very pragmatic approach that we had. Um, uh, the, The purest physiologist would say, why didn't you capture an hour before prone position and an hour after, you know, you supinated. But actually patients were being proned and supined at all hours of the day um, or not at all, as as we'll see when we discuss the results. Um, So we took a very pragmatic approach. Um, The networks were really through uh, phone a friend, actually. Um, with colleagues that were, you know, that were able to do it. And you know, our ambition was never to collect every ICU data, because actually those data pipelines are already in place through the through the ICNARC system, which is our intensive care national audit and research center, but it was really to gain a snapshot. And, you know, thanks to the help of from medical students to actually pilots who under, you know, who were furloughed, who ended up being, you know, recruited to collect data each of those sites really collected um, those granular data over time
0: interesting okay so let's switch and um what are the main results of the paper and the clinical impact from your point of view from your side of view
1: yeah so i think we we collected um 630 i mean we collected over a thousand patients worth of data and we cleaned that data set up um, to really include patients that were that we had data from within 48 hours of mechanical of initiation of mechanical ventilation, and we picked mechanical ventilation as an inclusion criteria for this protocol predominantly because that was an entry criteria for to a critical care area. Um, now, critical most different sites activated critical multiple critical care areas and wards were converted, and so this is why we picked. Um, that um, inclusion. So when we look at the overall mortality for patients in the first surge undergoing invasive mechanical ventilation for COVID, this was 43%, um, which is, you know, a remarkably high mortality. Um, and this mortality, particularly within the first surge, and we, our, we defined the surge as per our national ICNARC criteria from 1st of March to the 31st of August, now, 50% of all patients that underwent mechanical ventilation with COVID were admitted during the two weeks of the 1st of April. Um, and that's an enormous, you know, uh, overwhelming state that each of these ICUs went through. And mortality was highest within those two weeks if you're admitted, which, tells, which paints a really quite stark picture as to what the outcomes are based when our systems are so busy and so overwhelmed.
0: There was also this, and and you could see at least comparing the data to our German data, you only, you know, um, let young people on the IC, because your median age in your sample is like 59, while in the first search in Germany, in ventilated patients, it was 70. So that really is surprising them, so you already make a pre-selection, and then the high mortality.
1: Absolutely. And I think just going on to the impact of that pre-selection, this matches some of the national ICNARC data, which has, you know, over 12,000 patients in terms of admissions to ITU uh, for the first surge. And I think it was really quite challenging for ICUs to determine who came into ICU, because actually, if you imagine if we saw 10% of cases in ICU, 90% were seen on the wards. Um, and I think that the, the challenging nature of the patient pathways, um, I think simply became apparent
2: within the search, first search. Um, Perhaps I think it's, it's worth commenting here um, as a non-intensivist, um, that I think the decisions to the ICU admissions were not triage decisions made by ICU doctors. It's other wards that decided what patients were forwarded or not. And I think that's an important thing to highlight for our European friends who may have not been aware of the situation in the UK. And so the high mortality in the young age is more of a reflection of the dramatic situation we had in the country. Um, And and I think we need to, to make that very clear.
0: And do you think, because one of the most surprising information for me was also how different patients were treated in respect to proning. Um, do you, was this also different in the, in the, in the, in the first two weeks of April, because, um, we would prone patients immediately after intubation, uh, and also I would say with a, uh, median time of free proning session, um, um was this also a, a sign of, of, you know, staff shortage and overwhelming as well?
1: So I think it's quite interesting. I think the so if we look at the interventions per quartile of patients admitted, um, which is a table in the supplement, um, the the for instance, steroid use increased from you know 20% up to 60%, which is what you'd imagine. So the data capture was there. And the proning actually did increase over time. Um, And I think that says a lot about proning in general in the UK. Um, which, and actually, if you look at the Lung Safe study and the APRONET study, proning is quite interesting in terms of many of the patients are proned for rescue therapy, as opposed to, you know, an FiO2 of 0.6 with, you know, a, a PEEP of above 5 as per perceiver. and And I think that became apparent. And I think because of the overwhelming situation per quartile, People were prone over time because they, they didn't have an option. And I think that takes us on to the trajectory of this disease. It is unlike you know pre-COVID ARDS, most patients don't die of respiratory failure. They die of multi-organ failure. And I think, as we've all seen in, in this disease, patients die of hypoxemia, or at least. Refractoriness to therapy; they die with hypoxemia, and then I think caregiver fatigue, because you can only prone patients, you know, a certain proportion of a period of time until actually um, other factors in critical illness take precedence.
0: So our time is nearly over, and Aldo, I have actually one question to you, which I I was interested to discuss: the mortality prediction increased over time uh, using your longitudinal model. But um, explain to me, wouldn't it be possible that the prediction of the early deaths is more difficult? And by eliminating these cases in the model with the ongoing time, the model is getting better anyway?
2: Um, Okay, so I think we accounted for that in the way we analyze the data, because we fed uh, we actually ran a lot more uh, models than we were able <laughs> to pack into the paper by looking at um, it predicting for the first day, for the first two days, for the first three days and so forth. And um, so what we've put in the paper was basically the, the simplest way, story we could tell given the, the vast amounts of data. So from that perspective, um, we're quite confident that that effect is is not a strong or detectable effect in that sense. Um, yeah. So what it actually shows to us, um, and again, of course, this is a retrospective service evaluation, not a clinical trial, but what was dramatic and sort of more than we expected to see is how different, how the predictors changed over time and that there were really some factors that at admission would not be considered, um, but, you know, around day three, four, suddenly became very important. Um, And I think the interesting thing from a perspective of what we're running, which is a standing digital service evaluation, it gives us a picture of treatment and what people are looking out for, and what we can do um, may not change treatment recommendation, but what to look out for and what to pay attention to, um, you know, guiding the attention of the experts on on treatment, and I think this can be a very interesting and important aspect, also going forward in general operations. Um, another thing that we did not highlight in the paper because this was a national evaluation is that we're seeing clear patterns of differences in handling treatments that you know where hospitals cluster in different ways of treating and that's part of the process how information spreads how practice spreads how understanding spreads and um, and and we can start seeing this pattern this is further work that we are going to uh, hopefully Uh, published soon, but there's some very interesting aspects here that we can learn about. Um, And potentially, if you think about this run at a national or in European or or global level, if we can get a picture of treatment of things in general across the world, how it's life happening, that can be really transformative and and informative for uh, the expert who needs to take a decision.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, that is something we tried to you know, implement with telemedicine so that we can bring uh, this information out to other hospitals, for example. So um, I already have to close the session. I would really like to thank you for taking your time. And I understood correct that you are still collecting data. So we are waiting for the data of the second and the third wave. Right? <laughs> so looking forward to that. And thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you, Stefan.